I, uh, I grew up in a very small town. I was born in a small town in Haiti in the south. And I knew two little girls. Actually, the story was related to me by my family, but it, fasc- it fascinates me. Two young girls. One was already in school age, so she, she was in school. And the younger one, maybe she was four, she wasn't in school yet. And as it happens in every family, you guys know it, two siblings may have the same parents, obviously, the same home, the same kinds of parenting, the same instructions, the same every, they share life, the same environment, but that, necess- that does not necessarily mean they will have the same character. Well, this was true for these two little girls. The older one was so self-centered. If you are doing the chores around the house and you need some help, you're on your own. You know somebody like that? She will not help you. You can ask, you can beg, you can plead. She will not help. However, the younger one, who's not in school yet, very young, she would beg you to let you help her. If you are cleaning the kitchen, she said, can I help you, can I help you, can I help you, please, please, please. Of course, at her age, she does, she's, she, she's amazed by just the ability to help because she cannot help, really help yet. But this kind of attitude really seduced the parents and the family members and the neighbors, so much so that they called the girl good servant. They nicknamed her good servant. So as the word goes around, the older girl starts getting jealous. And one day, she decides to put an end to this. So she called the younger sister. She said, listen, in playing the good servant that you are doing right now, do you know what you're chancing? You are chancing your chance to go to school. Because in helping everybody, you'll get overwhelmed and get hurt and you will die, and you will not go to school next year. And, you know, kids, normally the first teaching you hear, you believe it. At that age, kids are very susceptible. So the younger girl was so scared, she never helped anyone anymore. I mean, of course, I'm sure that has changed now, but she stopped helping people. Words. Words. They are powerful. We can do things with words. With words, we can encourage someone. With words, we can bring somebody down. With words, we can build up and we can destroy. So words are powerful. God's word himself is what he used to create the world. And he has given us as human, as human beings the gift of words. And yet, how are we as his people to use our words? How are we as Christians to handle the words that we speak to people? The book of Proverbs helps us answer this question today. And as you know, the book of Proverbs is wisdom. It's part of the wisdom literature in the Bible. And you remember how wisdom literature works, correct? You remember how a proverb works. A proverb is not a promise, correct? 
This is a generalization about the truth of life. And the wisdom literature in God's word, they are designed to teach God's people how to lead an orderly life. So to live a life of wisdom is to live a life where you know the rightful place that belongs to God. So this is wisdom, this is Proverbs for you. And our text is no exception to the practicality of the book of Proverbs. Here we are in the section of the book of Proverbs called the sayings. The sayings. The sayings are not always connected. They're not like the instructions that are in the former part of Proverbs. They are the sayings. They're just statements, truths, general truths about life that are disconnected. So verse 1 may not relate to verse 2. But today we are lucky we have a couple of verses that are related. And from it we're going to unpack the questions, how are we as Christians to handle our words? How are we to handle our words as Christians? First of all, we must recognize that our words tend to get into our own heads. We must recognize that our words tend to get into our heads, that our words can bring a sense of self-satisfaction to ourselves. Our words can be sweet to our own heads, making us fall in love with our self-talking. I don't know if you remember the last meal you ate, maybe last week or last month, that made you feel really full. You remember that feeling? Here you are, after a long day of work, you're driving home, and that churning in your stomach reminds you that there's no food at home. So what do you do? You call Jewel for the rescue. You just pulled over in the parking lot at Jewel, so you dash for the line, you don't go for the uncooked food. You dash for the half chicken that's already cooked, really sizzling in the glass door. So anyway, here you are. You take that half chicken. You throw on the side some a sprinkle of salad somewhere. And you get this nice half melon, juicy and tasty looking. And you put it in your cart. And... As you go home, your mouth is watering, thinking about what you're going to devour. So here you are, hungry, and you get home. What do you do? You set your table, and you ate that chicken, all of it, skin and bones included. And you finish that watermelon. After that, how do you feel? Full. You know that feeling of satisfaction that you experience when you eat to your fill? Verse 20 of Proverbs equates that same feeling of satisfaction with the use of our words. Let's read it. From the fruit of a man's mouth, his stomach is satisfied. He is satisfied by the yield of his lips. Now, there is something to say about the beauty of this text. And there is something to say about the difficulty of this text. We may read it nonchalantly, we may pass over it, but this text is fraught with difficulty. First of all, let's address the beauty of this text. We may have touched on this last time, but when you're reading the poetic text, a lot of the wisdom texts in the Bible, they're poetic. They're not telling you stories like the book of Genesis is doing. They're not telling you stories like the book of 1 Kings, 2 Kings are telling you. They're not like the gospel that's telling you the story of Jesus' work and so forth. They are making 
statements. They're making proposition. But doing these statements, making these statements, the author uses word pictures, uses imagery to to draw you in into the world he wants you to think of. And secondly, and scholars debate this, but they all agree that you cannot miss the parallelism that's in this text. Parallelism, real briefly, is basically where two lines of statements, two statements are put side by side, one after the other. They're not really saying two different things. One may be supporting the other. One may be giving the contrast to the other. You've heard it. You know what I mean? Like Psalm 1-1, what does it say? You know, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, who does not sit in the company of mockers. You know, sitting in the company of mockers is not that different from you know, hearing the counsel or walk in the assembly of sinners and so forth. So I'm forgetting the verse, but you know the word. You know that it's not really saying two different things. That's what we call parallel lines. And sometimes, and here's what you're looking here. You're looking at a very beautiful text. It says, from the fruit of a man's mouth. That's a figure of speech. That's an imagery right there. From the fruit that comes from what the mouth does. What comes out of your mouth? Words. What happens? Your stomach is satisfied. And instead of saying something else, now it follows with a similar statement that restated beautifully the other one. He says, he is satisfied by the yield. So instead of using fruit, he uses a, a, synonym, syn, I mean, a synonymous word. Produce, crop, harvest. Of his, instead of using mouth, he used lips. So you see the picture? So we call this picture metonymy. And it's not a, it, it might be a big word, but you use it all the time. Remember when you, asked that, when you asked that girl out, you said, would you give me your heart? So heart, it's not really what's really beating in her chest that you want. You're not, a, you're not a cannibal, correct? So you're asking for something else, but you use one word that replaced what you, the idea you mean, correct? You're asking for love, but you use heart. So here, our text is using that same technique to replace what it's actually saying. So this is poetry. This is beautiful. However, as we said, the text is also difficult. It presents some difficulty for interpretation. What, I, what do I mean by this? You see the word fruit here. I'm kind of, I kind of, I kind of pulled the fast one on you. I just acknowledged, I act as though you, I assume that you understand it. I understand it. Yeah, fruit of our lips, fruit of our, fruit, fruit of our mouths, words. But interpreters disagree on what fruit stands for. There's two options that they go for. First option, they said, fruit can mean consequences. Consequences, whether good or bad, that comes from us speaking. Yeah, I could have agreed with with that, but there's a problem, the way the text is working. If they say consequences, let's replace it with consequences. From the consequences of a man's mouth, his stomach is satisfied. He is satisfied by the consequences of his lips. Okay. Verse 21. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. So are you telling me that both good consequences satisfied the person? Both bad satisfies the person? There is a problem there with this interpretation. So we chose to go elsewhere to understand the word fruit. Another option is this. Somebody said fruit means a good fruit, not barrenness. You know, good fruit, that means 
something that produces fruit as opposed to not produce, but there's also difficulty with that in interpretation as well. What is it? If you say good fruit, the text did not say good or bad in that first verse. It says, from the fruit of a man's mouth, his stomach is satisfied. It's not saying from the good. Because the problem is, in verse 21 again, you notice it acknowledges both good and bad that can come out of words. So that interpretation as well is, in, is a little bit misleading. And unfortunately, two versions of, that we read, the NLT and the message, make that choice for us. They decide for us that it means good fruit. So you'll see the NLT using wise words brings them in satisfaction kind of version. You see, it says that. What I'm saying is not that these versions are bad. They're not bad. They just make interpretive moves for you instead of you having to study it for yourself. So my advice is this. As you read these passages and the Bible in general, compare several versions, especially compare ESV, NIV, and other versions that are more formal translation, formal equivalency, so you can have the full picture. But the original word here does not say bad or good yet. It just says, from the fruit of a man's mouth, his stomach is satisfied. And here's the another thing I forgot to mention about the beauty of the text. You know how he puts it? Fruit, satisfaction. That's the first line. Second line, satisfaction, fruit. I mean, produce, you, you. Do you not notice that in the middle, you see clamped together the term satisfaction? They call this picture chiasm. So chiasm normally draws attention to what's in the middle and draws some emphasis. So I think what the text is getting at, the text is drawing attention to the feeling of satisfaction that somebody can draw from hearing themselves speak. So in other words, words are dangerous in the sense that they can make us fall in love with them. Put another way, we can love to air our own opinion. So much so, you know what I mean? So we're satisfied with what we're saying, just like somebody that eat, who eats a good meal. Now, we've addressed the beauty of the text. We've addressed the difficulty of the text. Now, how do we uh, apply this text? I, uh, I have a Facebook account, as many of you here. And when I post something on Facebook, I tend to go back and look to see how many people are liking it. So sometimes within seconds, 20 people. I'm like, whoa, whoa, I didn't know I was that good, that important, that red. But wait a minute, what's happening here in my heart? You see what's happening? My own words tend to produce some narcissistic tendencies in me. Because as a human being, I tend to be self-focused. I tend to see myself and nobody else. I tend to worship self and not worship God. I tend to put myself first and not others. So Facebook tends to show me that I have this tendency in my heart. My words, I can fall in love with them. I want to be heard. I want my opinion to be heard. So we have Twitter, we have our blogs, we have all the kinds of social media and so forth. In this book, uh, Amusing Ourselves to Death by Neil Postman, he makes a very important thesis, very important argument. It can be summarized just like this. This is how he says his thesis. He says, the medium is the metaphor. 
the medium is the metaphor. What Postman is trying to say here, by the way, Postman is analyzing the effect that TV will have on society in terms of education, dumbing people down, or contribute to education. So his thesis is this. He says, when a tool was created to do something, that's what it does. You can't make it do something else. TV was created to amuse people, to divert your attention, to entertain. It wasn't made to educate. So even when you put educational programs on it, when you're watching it, your tendency is to find amusement, not training, not teaching. For instance, this is the way he argues it. He says, you watch the news, for instance. You, you heard about this murderer who walks into a home, destroys a family, kills people. This is pretty gory. And right after you just say to yourself, oh, that's, that's so sad, that's awful, which is the normal feelings you should experience, guess what you want next? What you see in front of TV. Now what, what's next? You want the next program that should amuse you. So you see what happens? It takes away something of your humanity. Instead of educating you, it makes you want to amuse yourself, even using stuff that should put you on your knees or stuff that should mobilize the community to do something. So that's his argument. Now, if I go back you know, to my same story here, this is what happened to me when I'm looking at Facebook. The tendency is to, I want to see myself. This is a Facebook. This is not others' book. You see what I mean? So I'm looking at myself. So I want to see myself. That's narcissism. Self, you know, focus. But this is the power of our words. This is the tendency in the nature of our words. There's something else in the nature of words that we need to know as we handle our words. Secondly, we, should, we must acknowledge that our words are powerful. Our words are powerful. Our words can bring hard or great outcomes. In the movie Jurassic Park, there is two lines that caught my attention. The first line was this. I am overwhelmed by the power of this place. Can you tell which character that came from? I don't know the name, so don't expect me to help you with that. But this is, what, this is where that came from. This is a scientist who walks on the park, South America, in an island, to evaluate how safe the place is. And lo and behold, real dinosaurs is in front of her. You know, 50-foot-tall, I don't know, dinosaurs. And what's worse, she heard that T-Rex is on campus, too. <laughs> so, when she was with the owner of the park, the owner is pretty nonchalant about what he's doing. She said to him, when I walked on this place, I was overwhelmed by the power of it. And another scientist says in evaluation of the place, he said, you're like a kid who found his father's pistol. And he's just, you know, you know a loose cannon, you know? We tend to forget. We tend to deal with our words the same way that this owner of the Jurassic Park dealt with the park, with dinosaurs. 
Dinosaurs can eat you alive, can eat the whole human and take humans out of the food chain, you know, and reverse history. But that guy, he was not having it. He did not recognize the power that lied behind these creatures. So our words, they're like dinosaurs. That if we play with them, what can happen? They can eat us back if we do not handle them rightly. So recognize that our words are powerful. Our words are powerful. We should pay due respect and attention to them. Now, verse 21 says it real clearly, and here's how it deals with it. It says this, death and life are in the power of the tongue. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. And those who love it will eat its fruit. You remember fruit earlier in verse 20? So verse 21 gets right back to fruit as it ends. But in the middle, it, makes that, it, it, it tells you that words have consequences. Words have consequences. In the Hebrew, it says this. It says, death and life are in the hand of the tongue. You know, the word hand tends to stand for power in the Hebrew text. When it says, God delivered the Israelites in Judges, you know, over to the hand of the Philistine who oppressed them, the hand here means the power. And same way here. So literally it says, you know, the tongue can, can wield, you know, I mean, in, in other words, the tongue can wield great power for good or for ill. So the, our words are powerful for good or for ill. So we must remember that as we deal with our words. Let me give you an example of how words can be used for good. And uh, many examples can be drawn from counseling in general or preaching or teaching or sharing the gospel. But this one really got my attention, really gives me goosebumps. A uh, few years ago, there was a group of, a small group of Christians. They go out every week and do street evangelism. What, how, what, they don't do one-on-one. They just take their bullhorn and just speak. That's what they do. And one day, was pretty, it was pretty discouraging. It was pathetic, actually. There was no one on the street they were on. Here they are, heading towards, towards the beach, and they were supposed to speak. And so the guy who was scheduled to speak told his companions, uh, I'm not sure I'm going to preach today. Look, there's nobody on the, on the street today. I don't know what's happening. It's de- I mean, it's pretty desert around here. The, guy, the other team said, you know what? Uh, you never know. Go ahead and speak. So here's the guy walking like a madman or like John, ba- John the Baptist in the desert walking around. Uh, Jesus loves you and, you know, uh, come to Jesus, you know, uh, and repent from your sins and all this kind of jazz. And, he, 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 you know, he's, he's, he's laboring, you know, saying what he has to say. And then as he makes his way towards the beach, they look back and there was a man who was following them. So they went and asked the man, uh, can we help you? The guy said, I was about to end my life today, and I was going to the ocean to, uh, uh, to drown myself. And I heard you speak, and I decided to listen in, and I found hope in your message. Thank you for sharing. So here it is. Words have the power to give life, have the power to preserve life. They have the power to promote 
you know, happiness and life and the sense of fulfillment and not to end your life. Another example can be drawn from counseling is this, that when it's from counseling, it's, there is a, uh, a Christian counselor, his name is William Backus. I don't know if you're familiar with him, but I read his books when I was uh, in Haiti and they fascinate me. I read two of his books. One is called Telling the Truth to Yourself and the second one is Telling Each Other the Truth. Now, in the book, Telling Yourself the Truth, Bacchus develops this thesis that he gets from the Bible, and that cognitive counselors use it. His technique is this. Cognitive counseling means instead of giving you medicine to deal with some feelings that you, the cognitive counselor may help you get back be, to what's behind the thoughts that bring you down whatever that is, that depression. He may say, you may be having some depressive thoughts. Let's see what you're thinking that led you there. So, and then it teaches you to acknowledge these thoughts and it teaches you how to replace them with something healthier. And that may tend to help people recover. And in the book, William Beckett counts stories after stories of how people recover. For instance, they, they might, he, would, he would tell a story about a guy. Let's say his name was Bob. And here is Bob. His wife left him. He cannot see his kids yet. Bob is down in the dumps. And Bob goes to the next bar that he can find and, you know, drinks himself to a marshmallow. And Bob wants to end his life because, you know, what else is left? He lost his wife. He lost his kids. At least temporarily, he cannot see them. So Bob wants to end it all. And here's how Bacchus would deal with it. And Bob would come to William Bacchus's office. And Bacchus would say, okay, let's backtrack a little bit. What do you think about your situation? Oh, it's horrible. It's unbearable. It's horrific. Okay, what do you think about your life? Oh, my life is worthless. What do you think about uh, your, uh, your situation. There's no hope. There's nothing to do about it. So the person would devalue their lives, uh, their situations, and uh, I forgot what else. There's a third element, but I can't remember. But what it is, is he would go back behind depression. He would find these ideas, these three components, that if you devalue your life, you devalue your situation, you overestimate the situation, and you devalue yourself, what happened? You're in a state of clinical depression if you stay there. Because it can really bring you down. It can be suicidal and so forth. So you say, now, Bob, here's what we're going to do. I want you to identify on a piece of paper these thoughts. And Bob will write it. My situation is horrible. I am worthless. You know, I want to die. All the, whatever thought. He says, now look at it. And now, the Bible says, as a man thinks, so is he. So look at this. It is true that it is sad that you lost your wife. Somebody that you trusted let you down or left you. Somebody who promised life with you let you down. That is true. This is sad. But is it hopeless? Even if she never gets back to you, is your life not worth it? No. So you would have him replace them with truth. My situation is sad, but not hopeless. I can still treat my wife, my ex-wife, with kindness despite the fact that it hurts. So these are truths. So you would have them write statements like these over and over. My life is worth living even though 
I lost what counted the most for me so, for now. He would say all these. And then, sure enough, in a few weeks or months, I don't know how long it takes, the process would work its way into from uh, the gentleman's heart, you know, to his head, I mean, from his head to his heart, and he would start being transformed, get back to work, recover, get sober. So this is the cognitive process, and this is an exemplification of how words can be powerful. Isn't that, isn't that, I don't know who said that, but I love it. He said, watch your thoughts, for they become words. Watch your words, for they become action. Watch your actions, for they become your character. And watch your character, for, the, for it becomes your destiny. Isn't that Jesus that said, on the day of judgment, everyone will give an account for any idle words that they have spoken? So, your words are more powerful than you can think, for good or for ill at times. And we can draw examples for how words can be used for the power of, for something evil as well. We said words can be are powerful for good or for ill. I had a friend, uh, a pastor, I mean, he's a, he's a PK, he's a pastor's kid from Haiti. He, uh, very, very kind young man, very good speaker, really, really intelligent man. And one day he told me that story, and that really affected me. I didn't realize how awful some people could be <laughs> in your own family sometimes. <laughs> but here's what happens with him. His name is Jude. Jude grew up with two brothers and one sister. Jude is like an oddball in the family. While his brothers are tall and massive, his father is tall and massive, except his sister, of course. Jude is shorter than everybody in his family. Jude is so skinny, like if he turns sideways, you know, you, don't, you barely see him. So anyway, <laughs> Jude. So somebody decide to make a joke and pull a prank on Jude, somebody in the family. Said, Jude, did you know that you were adopted? Just look at you. Your skin complexion doesn't even look like ours. That's number one. Number two, look how small you are. Even though you're, the, you, you're not the youngest, you're the smallest among everyone here. So what Jude did, started believing. Started believing and started feeling depressed, feeling unloved, feeling like a second-class member of this family. And it goes down and down and down and down. But praise the Lord, Jude's story didn't end up in suicide or anything, you know, horrible, because he recovered halfway through the process. He found out that was a joke. But what if he did not find out? Who knows what could have happened to him? So words are powerful. Words can do damage. Words can, words can destroy. Words can uplift. So we better pay attention to the power of our words. So, and another bad example, that one is closer to us here. Jerry Jenkins, I don't know if you know him, is the author of the Left Behind series. Jerry Jenkins wrote a book for uh, marriage couples on how to keep their marriage integrity. And in the book, he says, he, he tells how careful we need to be with the words that we use. Don't use things that we don't mean or we don't mean to say. Here's what happened. He says, two couples, two Christian couples, were at a camp, a family camp, together. They've been friends forever. And they're hanging out. And for some jokes, 
I don't know, that came to the mind of one of the husbands. He just flirts with, it wasn't, I mean, of course he was flirting in that sense with the other man's wife. He said to the man, to his friend, to his best friend, you know what? If you let so and your wife go, you know, I'll, I'll pick her up. I'll take her. And then, I don't know by what got into his mind that made him say that. And he thinks he's joking. And later on, the woman came to him and said, did you really mean what you said earlier? And by the following course of events, the woman moved in with him. And she divorced her husband for that guy. And the guy divorced his wife for her. You see how it started? Just some idle words. Spoken out of turn. Spoken unnecessarily. Spoken maybe not seriously. But you know what Jesus said about our words, right? Jesus confronting the Pharisees about what comes into our mouth versus what comes out. He says that's, that's what comes into somebody's mouth. The food that you eat that solves you, that defies you, that makes you sinful. It's what comes out. Is that right? He says for, for out of the heart comes what? The adultery. You know, the sexual immorality. The slander. Is that correct? So, so out of our mouths, you know, can come life and death. Jim says it. It says, the mouth, let me read it for you. James chapter 3. And it says, uh, for we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to bridle his whole body. And then if you put a bit in the mouth of horses and so on and so forth, but here's verse 5. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is set, is a fire, well, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. So, our words are powerful. They can destroy somebody's world. They can destroy us. us. We can use them to bless. We can use them to curse. We can use them to produce good. We can use them to produce evil. So, when we speak, we need to remember that our tongue is wielding life and death. When you speak to your sister, who is not nice to you next week, remember that how you speak to her can wield life to her or death to her. When you speak to your son who's not making great choices, remember how you speak to him is wielding life and death. When you speak to your spouse, when you speak to your neighbor who's a jerk, remember how you speak is you are wielding life and death. Now here's our third point. If we say that we must acknowledge, recognize that our words tend to get into our heads, that we must acknowledge that our words are powerful for good or for ill, what's the logical implication? The implication is this. We must use our words with restraint. We must use our words with care and restraint. Our words bear eternal consequences. So there was a young man uh, who was Socrates' students. You know Socrates, the philosopher? He was uh, 
he was known for his method of making, helping somebody discover, you know, wisdom and insight. That here's Socrates, and a student comes to him to be taught oratory, how to speak well in public, how to be a nice orator. And at the end of, at the, end of the session, Socrates said, you'll pay me double. Wait a minute. Why should I pay you double? Socrates said, because I need to teach you two sciences. First is the science of holding your tongue. And this one is more difficult, and you need to be very diligent at it. And second, I need to teach you how to speak. So here's how he ends it. I, I love the way he ends it. It says, the first science is the more difficult, but aim at proficiency at it, or you will suffer greatly and create trouble without end. I don't know who wrote this, but this bears quoting. If your lips would keep from, slip, from slips, if your lips would keep from slips, five things observe with care of whom you speak, to whom you speak, and how, and when, and where. Can I just say this again? If your lips would keep from slips, five things observe with care. Of whom you speak, to whom you speak, and how, and when, and where. Now, some of you are looking at me and thinking, well, it's fine for you, kind sir, to tell me to restrain my words. But you don't tell me how. You don't offer any help. Now, here's what you've been waiting for. I have, if I really convinced you, if the word of God has convinced you and has spoken to your heart that there is a need for you to learn, to master how to use your word with restraint, how to be silent when you need to be and to speak with the spirit of love and truth in mind, a couple sentences might help you. I'm going to give you a couple of phrases. Hopefully, there is some margin, some space at the bottom of your sermon notes. Write this first sentence, this first phrase. The first sentence you can say, it is okay to be silent for now. So when you are tempted next time to just blurt out in inordinate anger, by the way, anger is not a problem in itself. There is such a thing as righteous anger. But when you are tempted to say something you don't mean, something that could be hurtful, remind yourself. Just, you know, dig your toes in the, on, on the ground and say, it's okay. You can say it out loud if you want to freak the person out. But say, it's okay to be silent for now. It's okay to be silent for now. Say it. Repeat it to yourself. And you may find you give the Holy Spirit enough time to speak to you, to calm you down. Or if the right thing to do at a time, you can't really control yourself, is to leave, just leave. But say, you know what? I have no reaction for now. I'll come back to you later if I need to. Because sometimes the wisest thing to do is to hold our tongue. How many things have I said to my wife that I wish I could take back? How many things that I've heard people say and they wish that they have rolled their tongue seven times inside of their mouth before they spoke? So we cannot be wise enough or too much. You cannot overemphasize the need to think before we speak. So this phrase might help you. I don't have to respond right now. You know, I don't have, I, it's okay to be silent right now. Now, I'm not teaching you passive aggressiveness. You know what that is? You know? You're very angry at the person. You really disapprove what they did to you. It really hurts you legitimately. And you said, you know, I'm a Christian, so I should not respond. 
And so you keep saying, no, that's not really Christian. That's unwise. It's called bottling it up, and it comes back with a vengeance in your life. It shows in inordinate anger, outburst, depression, and even worse things than that. So that's what it does. Ephesians chapter 4 tells us how to speak. It says, speaking the truth in love. Huh. And if you know the whole chapter, you know what that chapter is doing. It's encouraging Christians how to build each other up, how to grow mature in Christ. Correct? So Ephesians 4 teaches us that when we speak, teaches us that when we speak, we need to keep two, these two things in equal tension. Truth in love. So if you're about to say something true, but harshly, mm, needs to hold your tongue. If you're about to say something loving, but that's not true, we call those white lies, that's not biblical either. You're not really loving the person or helping the person. You've seen these people in American Idols. They show up. They don't even know how to sing or anything. They're making a fool of themselves in front of millions of spectators. Why? Because somebody lied to them. Right? Oh, you're great. You sound great. That's not true. They know that. They just, oh, I want to spare her feelings. You know, somebody's feelings is important, you know. True, our feelings are important. But we're not supposed to be manipulators of them, correct? So God's word says, speak the truth in love. So here's the next phrase I'm going to teach you if you don't know how to respond. Again, in a situation where you're tempted to use something unwise, something unkind, something harsh, something destructive. You can say, Americans use it all the time, and I love it. And that word has a special meaning between me and David Wood because we talk about it. Say to yourself, that's interesting. And put that, that, that in it. We know what that gives you? It gives you time. <laughs> First of all, you're buying time because you don't know how to answer smartly. Secondly, it gives you time to ponder, pray in your heart, and check yourself before.